You're listening to episode 126 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Caitlin Verfirth. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. My name is Mirban Aranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top tennis pros, coaches, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And I hope you've been having a great winter so far. I came back from Chicago recently, actually caught a cold there, but it's okay. I'm recovering and I got to meet a friend, uh, shout out to Jenna, who used to live uh, in the Maryland area, DMV, and she now is in Chicago. Uh, I had a great time at a work conference over there, and I'm back and recovering, but, um, you know, work is never done, and I always enjoy interviewing great people no matter what state I'm in, I guess unless I'm in some sort of really terrible cold or sickness state, but fortunately this isn't the case. It's not too bad, so I'm grateful for that. But on today's episode, I have a great interview for you with Paralympian Caitlin Verfirth, and she's actually been to the Paralympics three times in 2004, 2008, and 2016. She's overcome uh, a lot of adversity, extreme adversity, I would say, uh, to lead a very positive lifestyle, and she's accomplished so many great things in her life and in her career as a wheelchair tennis professional. Uh, she's also won the bronze medal at the 2014 Copa Americas Cup and two gold medals, in uh, one in singles, one in doubles, in the Parapan American Games in Rio in 2007. She also has a nonprofit called Parasport Flagstaff, uh, that being Flagstaff, Arizona, which helps children with disabilities. And she's also the head coach of the girls' tennis team at Flagstaff High School, among many other things in her life. And she also has a website that you all should check out at CaitlinVerfurth.com. That's K A I T L Y N V E R F U E R T H. Dot com uh, And Caitlin, I definitely wrote that down and read it. I <laughs> wasn't able to commit all that from memory, but uh, as far as the website spelling. But um, anyways, I really enjoyed this interview with Caitlin. She's a very cool person, extremely positive, brings a lot of positivity to people, a lot of people, as you'll hear in the interview. And so we're also both Leos and the same age. How about that? Maybe that's why we got along so well during the chat. But in any case, I really hope that you enjoy this uh, very fun, interesting, and inspiring interview. A lot of great things that I'm sure you'll pick up from this episode that you can apply to your life. And so without further ado, here is my interview with Caitlin Verfirth. Hey everyone, I'm Mirban Aranshad and we're here to talk with professional wheelchair tennis player and Paralympian Caitlin Verfirth about wheelchair tennis and how she reached the highest levels of the sport. And Caitlin has really accomplished so much, uh, which I, I covered in the intro. And I just want to welcome you to the show, Caitlin, and uh, really, uh, really appreciate uh, you coming onto the podcast and talking to us about your world. 
Thank you for having me, Mirabon. This is really exciting, and it's an honor to uh, be on your show. Oh, thank you so much, Caitlin. Yeah, it's an honor to have you on the show as well. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, you've been to uh, you've been a Paralympian multiple times, and you've had so many great experiences. Uh, and I really want to get into just your story about um, how you you know you've overcome some great challenges in your life, and now you're. You've, you've accomplished so much, and you've also given back quite a bit to the sport, uh, and you have a really interesting background. So uh, first off, just want to ask you, uh, just kind of really diving right in, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what uh, physical difficulty do you currently have that, uh, that makes you have to play uh, and really function uh, with a wheelchair? Yeah, so when I was um, seven years old, um, um, my family and I, we were involved in a major car accident and, um, my mom was driving, my brother was sitting in the front seat <clears throat> and it was an older vehicle, um, before they made this new law now that all the back seats, um, the seat belts have to have a shoulder restraint, but it was back in the day when there was only like a lap belt. And so I happened to be sitting in the back seat, um, right in the middle seat. And I just had a lap belt on and, um, we, we hit a semi truck. And I got whipped forward, which um, caused me to sever my spinal cord. So I basically have a spinal cord injury, um, and I'm paralyzed from pretty much the waist down. Um, my level is uh, T11 to L1. So on one side of my body, I have a little bit more function than the other side of my body. It's incomplete. Um, but unfortunately, due to the car accident and due to having a spinal cord injury, um, I have to use a wheelchair for the rest of my life. But um, I've never let that stop me from doing anything. Um, in fact, the technology of chairs and things like that have come such a long way that, you know, getting around in a wheelchair really isn't that big of a deal as it could have been or used to be uh, back in the day. So um, I'm really thankful. I thank my stars every single day that I have um, a day to be here on this earth and to be alive. Um, I know, you know, I could have lost my life that day. And um, I've had a really great attitude toward my uh, situation and just towards my accident and everything. Um, you know, when I found out the day that I would never walk again, um, I was, mind you, I was maybe seven or eight years old. And I think at that time it was my first time really, really dealing with real depression and having a real sense of some kind of loss. Like I never really lost something before. And, but from that moment on, um, I knew that I, I had more of this life to live and I don't know why at seven or eight I had this instinct, but I knew that I was going to be able to go on and I knew that I was going to get through it. And whatever it is, this higher power or God or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, I just believe that I was still meant to be here on earth and I had still had things to do here. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just really thankful for what I have and how far I've come. But um, that's pretty much my story in a nutshell as far as my physical limitations. Um, I, do, I do use a wheelchair on the, on the, on the daily, but um, I love life. I live it to the fullest. It was just one little setback, but... I kind of almost look at my car accident as like a blessing in disguise because I don't know if, if without having that and experiencing all the challenges and 
adversity that I had faced, if I would ever be where I'm at today and even playing tennis, I, I have no idea. So, and, and being able to travel the world and see so much of our country and the globe, it's just been unbelievable. Um, so I'm really thankful for those opportunities. So yeah, I kind of look at it as like a blessing in disguise. Yeah, Caitlin, I mean, uh, you're, you're amazing and your attitude is is just so, so fantastic. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's really the, the key to, to life, you know, having that type of attitude where you have an attitude of gratitude and being thankful for everything you have and uh, just having a positive outlook and, uh, you know, never never giving up and things like that. So that's that's really wonderful. And uh, I, was, I was curious, um, Caitlin, you know, h- how long did the actual rehab uh, take you after that accident? I was in the hospital for uh, maybe almost three and a half months. Um, but yeah, after a major injury like that, I had to learn how to do everything all over again. Um, everything from getting dressed to using the bath, um, you know, just those kind of things that we all kind of take for granted, I think. Um, but yeah, you know, even though you're in a chair and you're, you know, moving around in the kitchen and you're trying to make stuff, um, you know, if the countertop is too high or if you can't see the top of the stove, it does make it quite a challenge. So, um, you know, just trying to learn how to adapt and trying to come up with different ways to do things. Um, I mean, I'll climb the countertop if I have to reach something or do what I got to do to get something. But um, I learned that just at a very young age that, um, you know, the world isn't isn't made for somebody like me. And so I always had to, like, find different ways to get things done. And that's what I loved about tennis so much is, like, I have this fighting and determination type of attitude that no matter what or where I was in my match, like I always had that fighting spirit. Like even if I was down like zero, you know, in the set, like zero five, I still like fought for each point. Cause you just never know. You can always find your way back into a match or back into the, into the game. Yeah. hundred percent for sure. And, um, you know, you, it, I was reading your, your, um, your, your background and accomplishments and, uh, in particular, I thought there, there's something that really struck me that you did every night uh, in the hospital. Can you talk about uh, that and, and the impact on uh, the others, other patients and also yourself? Yeah. So um, when I was little and um, basically I was on this in this hospital unit that was just basically for adults. It wasn't like a children's hospital or anything. And it was the fifth floor. And my accident happened in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's where I was like born and raised. And um on the fifth floor was like the spinal cord injury unit. And I was the only kid up there. And I remember when I got my wheelchair for the first time, well, first of all, I was like super upset that day. Cause I realized that, okay, this is the thing I'm going to have to use to get around in. And well, let me just say my first wheelchair wasn't as cool as my chair is now or, or previous chairs I've had. So I was pretty depressed and bummed, but the, the, more I was able to use it and figure out how to use my chair. I just wanted to go and like kind of go like this hospital unit was like in a circle. You could just kind of go around. And so I would just kind of do laps, but then I would stop and talk to people along the way, like in their rooms, I would like to go in there and say hi and see how they were doing. And it was just me being a curious little kid, but I had no idea that I was kind of making a big impact on these people because my mom or as I got older, I received letters from people that said that they were so thankful and grateful for me just being me and coming in and checking in on them and saying goodnight and seeing how they're doing. It really made their day and it helped them also get through what was going on with them or help them deal with their injury. And I just remember being a kid and there was a couple people on the on, on the love on the unit there that 
didn't enjoy having me come in. And I remember I would always go into like the nurse's, uh, you know, the nurse's office or whatever you call, I can't think of the name right now. And I would, or I would always go in there and be like, why doesn't so-and-so like me? And da, da. And, and they would just kind of laugh at me because I just couldn't understand, you know, that was their way of dealing with, you know, what was going on with them, you know, and they didn't want to see this, you know, cute little smiling girl rolling around and trying to cheer them up at that time. But, you know, later on, I, I did get a letter from this one particular individual that didn't enjoy me coming. And he, he actually said that he really did enjoy it. And he was sorry that he kind of made a stink about it, but he was just going through his own thing. So, I mean, I totally understand that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, your attitude really just made such a huge impact. I mean, uh, one in particular, I remember reading said that he was actually, he wanted to commit suicide basically, but you helped him kind of realize uh, that there was more to life. So huge impact there. Really appreciate uh, that great attitude that you had and continue to have. Uh, you you kind of talked about this a little bit, I but I just wanted to, maybe possibly dive deeper into it. I mean, you know, after something like this happened, a lot of people would really uh, have a hard time, uh, you know, and and maybe think that, you know, their athletics and other things would be severely hampered. Um, but I mean, what do you think it was that that where you had this belief that, you know, this happened, but I'm going to get back, you know, uh, on the saddle and you know, be able to do what I, uh, I love. Uh, I mean, do you, was this like some, you know, were your parents maybe, uh, like, did they instill this in you or was it some other sort of, uh, thing that, that, uh, that gave you this sort of confidence and belief? Well, um, prior to my accident, uh, my mom and my grandmother and a bunch of their girlfriends, they would play tennis like always on Thursday nights uh, in Wisconsin, especially in the summer. And so I had played tennis a little bit, you know, before my injury and I really enjoyed playing. But my whole family was a very active family. Like we were always hiking or camping or um, doing something active, being outdoors. My mom was like a marathon runner. So my mom, uh, my parents got divorced when I was way before the accident and when I was little. But my mom uh, was a big, big part of my attitude and like having this determination because I guess as a younger child, like I saw my mom go through a lot, you know, with our divorce. And then we had this car accident and like my mom just wasn't going to let anything stop her. And, you know, I just kind of with growing up with her, I saw her as my example. And for whatever reason, we both just have this fighting spirit. And so after the car accident, my mom um, was really lucky to be alive. In fact, her injuries were way more extensive than mine. When she was driving, the whole engine of the car fell into her lap, like it came into uh -huh. her lap and her face was like smashed against the steering. It was awful. And like, if you see her, saw her today, you have no idea that this had happened to her, but basically she has all rods in her legs. She has no kneecaps. Her whole face was like all facially you know, reconstructed. And so I saw her go through a lot after, you know, once I came home after I healed from my injuries and both my mom and I were in wheelchairs for at least uh, a year and a half after the accident together. And so I was just kind of, you know, we had PTs and home care come in and all kinds of different stuff. And my mom was such a hard worker and she was, be, you know, she would be doing her PT exercises like they would tell her to do it, you know, twice a day. My mom would do it four or five times a day because she wanted to walk again and get that strength back. And so I saw that in her and I kind of approached my situation the same the same way. And I worked really hard in PT, you know, to get what I can get back. You know, I, I, I knew I probably would never walk again, but any any kind of movement that I would get back was was 
you know, a gift. And so I think that's where I get a lot of my determination and strength from. And yeah, she's just a very, very, very strong, powerful woman. And, and so I think uh, a lot of people like quotes just because they kind of distill a lot of, um, you know, knowledge and wisdom in, in like one line. But is there any sort of saying or quote or anything that you remember your mother telling you at any point that stuck with you uh, until today? Our big thing was just never give up. I think that was just, you know, we've had so many times where we're just crying or, you know, holding each other's arms. And I knew, you know, in the in the beginning with the car accident, I think she had a lot of guilt because, you know, she was driving and accidents are accidents and they happen. And I, and I remind her that and I still have to remind her that today, you know, but, you know, our thing was never, never give up. And I know that's not that great of a quote, but you just can't give up on what you just can't give up in general. So that, that was kind of our thing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a that's a really powerful quote. I mean, I appreciate you, uh, you know, letting us know about uh, this piece of wisdom that you're mom instilled in you. And so, I mean, moving past the, the accident, I mean, what was the first sport that you ended up uh, picking up after the accident? So um, when I was in PT, uh, my, my physical therapist had told me about this program. It's an adaptive sports program. And it was at the University of Whitewater, which is in Wisconsin. And they had I believe it was at the time a, a division one wheelchair basketball team and they still are, um, are one or two in, in this, in the nation, both men's and women's teams. They're just outstanding. So I actually started playing wheelchair basketball. That was my first sport. And I thought it was a really great sport and a good intro to adaptive sports because we're tennis, you know, it's maybe just one and two, you know, it's just you or two people playing at least with, you know, basketball, you have a team of five people, so you can rely on your team a little bit more, but it really taught me how to have, um, what we call in wheelchair tennis chair skills. And mm -hmm. so those are just skills, simply just moving your chair in certain directions, being able to start and stop quickly, going, you know, turning on a dime or, or, you know, going to a specific point on the court and then being able to turn also just tracking other people. So like, as people are coming down on the court, how to play defense, cause you want to, you know, kind of stay close to that person. So really working on those chair skills really helped not only just help me play basketball, but actually taught me how to use my wheelchair for everyday use. And so I think that was really instrumental in helping me become a lot more independent and a lot more like self-sufficient and feeling more confident in myself because now I was learning skills that I could use in my wheelchair that I didn't have before. And now I'm like, you know, jumping off curbs. Um, I can jump up curbs, uh, you know, doing all kinds of different stuff that maybe a normal a person in a wheelchair wouldn't do mm -hmm. that maybe didn't have a sports background, but I was just able, I'm just able to use my chair just a little bit more than the average just because of those of those great chair skills and things like that and doing a wheelie and so we use a lot of those things uh every day like when you you know maybe are going on a sidewalk and you have to do a little wheelie if there's like a bump or something like that so all those things are really important but i learned that all through wheelchair basketball and um i learned how to go fast to go slow so those were all very very important parts of learning how to be in a wheelchair and then play sports and or play in a wheelchair and play sports. And so wheelchair basketball was pretty much my, my first sport. And I love it. I still love it today. I still play it. We have a women's team here in uh, Arizona that I play with. And um, I still play just because I love the cross training. I love the social aspect. I love seeing the girls and, and, you know, shooting around and stuff. Awesome. That's really awesome background there. And uh, Caitlin, how did they uh, teach, you know, the different skills? Was it just like, 
each day you'd learn like one new skill or because it seems like there's like quite a few different uh, technical aspects of each uh, different chair skill. I think, you know, uh, the other important thing to mention here is that there's um, when you're in adaptive sports, there's a sports chair. You have a chair basically for every sport. So for wheelchair mm. basketball, I have a chair. For tennis, I have a specific chair that I play tennis in. We have like a, I have like a hand cycle. I have a hiking chair. So it's kind of like shoes. Uh, you have you know different chairs for different sports. And once you get in that specific chair for that sport, a whole new like world kind of opens up because. When you're moving around in just like an everyday, what I call an everyday chair, which is the chair I just roll around in doing my thing or, you know, working or whatnot, it's uh, a lot smaller and, you know, it's a little bit, it can get indoors and things like that. Whereas like a tennis chair or a basketball chair, the wheels are angled outward a little bit. They have what's called camber and that allows the chair to move a lot quicker and you can turn a lot faster and that allows you to like learn these skills a lot quicker versus learning it in your like everyday chair. And so by doing it in that specific sports chair, then it was able to kind of just translate over to this chair and it just became a lot easier if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. But basically, you know, you just take little things at time or, you know, one thing at a time or what really helped me is just watching other people that were in chairs or in sports chairs do things. And then I would try to do it. And then I'd be like, oh, okay, that's how you do that. Or, you know, so I really learned a lot from other people that had uh, different disabilities as well. Very cool, Caitlin. And could you point out any differences between the basketball wheelchair and the tennis wheelchair? Yeah. So um, the main difference really is the basketball chair uh, has this like bumper on the front. And so that allows you to have like full contact and stuff like that. And then the back wheel, which we call a fifth wheel, um, it's a little bit shorter. It doesn't have to be as long as the tennis chair's back wheel does because, well, just for, for tennis, we need a, a fifth wheel or the back wheel. So when we serve, we can really lean back and really put our, a lot of our weight back and then go back up forward into the serve. So those are really the only two differences between the two. But a lot of people or anybody that would be listening that you know is in a chair or you know wants to start playing tennis like I started playing in my basketball chair before I even got a tennis chair and I played for at least three or four years until I got my first tennis chair wow so cool and uh actually my friends often uh call me the fifth wheel when I go out with them but uh that's a whole different thing (laughs) no I I was just joking you know like when couples go out and then they need like a fifth oh yeah (laughs) Uh, but (laughs) anyways uh I was curious uh you know, these chairs, I mean, it sounds like they're very, uh, obviously, you know, very advanced, especially today. So uh, I was curious if you could kind of tell us the, the price range for these chairs. Yeah. So these chairs are not cheap. They're pretty expensive. And the the more you get into it, the more customized it gets. So I've been very fortunate enough, uh, enough to have a really great sponsor, this guy, Mike Box. Um, he makes box wheelchairs. And what box wheelchairs is known for is actually, I don't know if you ever seen Nitro Circus or, or any of those, or like Jackass or any of those crazy shows. <laughs> oh yeah. Definitely. Okay. So where people, you know, do crazy stunts. Well, there's this guy, his name's Aaron, 
Aaron Frothingham, but his nickname is Wheels. And basically um, what he does is he does like the mega ramps and he will start at the top in his chair. He will go down the mega ramp and then go up and then do a back, a whole flip and then, you know, land on his wheels, which is pretty amazing and really scary. So Mike actually got box chairs. That's what, that's what they're known for is he makes like skate park chairs um, or people that really want to get into the WCMX, which is, you know, wheelchair wheelchairs in the skate park but he's a really good friend of mine uh he's made my very own tennis chair there's not one anywhere out there like it so it's very customizable it's very customized to me i mean and that chair probably would be about five or six thousand dollars um but if you just get a uh, pretty much standard run-of-the-mill chair um it'd be anywhere between three and four thousand it also depends on you know what kind of accessories you get the type of wheels i mean all those things really go into play for sure. And, um, you know, with back to the uh, the chair movements, like I was just curious, what is the most difficult movement, would you say, for a chair tennis player to execute? Well, the weirdest thing about or not the weirdest, I guess the one thing that if you played if you play tennis on your feet and then you try to play in your wheel in a wheelchair, what you'll notice is as a wheelchair user, we have to turn our back to the court. Mm. Whereas able body, I mean, you would never see anybody really turn their back to the court ever, but because, because of the way that we have to move, we have to turn our back to the court. And so, um, I know people that, you know, had played tennis on their feet before, or people that try the wheelchair, they'll try to back up mm. and it's just not a, you know, back up. Like if you get into the court and then you want to back up and get out, um, it's just not an effective way to just start wheeling backwards. Cause you can't, it's just not as fast. So what we do is sometimes we have to like turn around, kind of do maybe like a banana cut or something like that. So we can see back into the court. But I would say backing up is, is kind of the hardest is one of the hardest things or, or the biggest challenge. I think, especially if people are used to playing on their feet and then going into a chair. Got you. Got you. Appreciate that. And uh, as far as, um, you know, your progressions through wheelchair tennis, I was wondering, um, you know, at what point did you end up becoming like a pretty, pretty serious and, uh, you know, highly ranked player? Um, so I, I, I didn't start playing tennis until I was probably 13 or 14. Um, and honestly, uh, the only reason why I really got into wheelchair tennis was because I learned that it was a sport that I could compete against. I could play with my friends and my family. And I, I really just wanted that competitive experience and to compete on my high school team. So that was really the biggest reason why I started playing tennis again was because I just wanted to be able to be part of a team and, and to be able to compete for my high school, which I, which I really wanted to do. And it was an honor to represent. And I was like the first wheelchair, uh, tennis player in the state of Wisconsin to play uh, high school tennis in a wheelchair. And, um, well, my, my teammates were awesome and I loved my whole, whole experience of high school tennis. But a lot of times when we played other schools, because I was the only one in a wheelchair playing tennis, they would, you know, give me or my coach a lot of, a lot of flack because they thought that the two bounce rule was unfair or, um, I'd, I'd play matches on, you know, high school matches and I would beat other girls and they wouldn't come to the net to shake my hand because they were just so upset. Wow. They, they lost to a girl in a wheelchair or something like that. Um, so, so, I mean, that was kind of my first experience with real competition. And, um, as I was playing uh, high school tennis, I had, 
ended up going to a, our actual wheelchair tournament, just a, just a wheelchair tennis tournament in St. Louis. And um, I met a lot of different people. At the time, I met um, the U.S. national coach. His name was Dan James at the time. And basically, I started playing uh, junior wheelchair tennis with the U.S. And then um, I learned about this whole other tour, the wheelchair tennis tour. That's pretty much how I, I really got into the professional side of wheelchair tennis. That was my start. Awesome, Caitlin. And, you know, you mentioned this kind of difficulty. It's it's pretty sad, to, to be frank, you know, where uh, your opponents in, in high school, they weren't very respectful in, in some cases. I was wondering uh, how you were able to get past that. You know, I'm sure that it was like mentally not the greatest thing and probably upsetting. So how were you able to get past uh, that, that type of uh, unfair treatment? Well, my coach, he was like an older retired gentleman and he was just super funny. And, you know, whenever it would happen, because he, he would always like, he, you know, how high school, I'm sure you, you played high school tennis, right? Obviously, yeah, yeah. you played co- division one college tennis. And like, I don't know, my coach would always, you know, when your high school coach is like watching around and or walking around and, you know, checking on everybody's matches and he would always he always knew when my matches was coming to an end. And so he would always be there uh, ready for whatever would happen. Cause this was something that kind of happened every once in a while. And I don't know, he would just make me laugh about it. And he would be like, come on, you're not going to let that bother you seriously. Uh, just stuff like that, just to kind of take my attention away from it. But it was really hard as a player because you know, when somebody's injured or like you're playing somebody that's injured, it's really hard to like, I don't know how you feel this way, but, um, you know, you want to play your best tennis, but then it's like their heart, you know, they can't play as well because they got mm-hmm. something going on. And like, I don't know, I was like, whenever I looked across or, you know, just when you play like a sorry loser, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And like, you don't want to let that affect you, but you know, you're going to win because they're not trying anymore kind of thing. That's kind of mm-hmm. how I always felt. But my coach was just really funny about it. And I don't know, he just made me like try to forget about that situation and be like, come on, don't, you don't even need to go there. Yeah. That, that's wonderful. I mean, it's great that you've had great, great influencers in your life, like your, your mom and your high school coach and obviously, um, you know, Paralympian coaches. Uh, but, uh, as far as, um, you, you know, the, uh, when you played uh, tennis in college, I, I actually had no idea. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you actually received a scholarship to play uh, wheelchair tennis at the U- University of Arizona. Is that right? Yeah, that is that is awesome because I didn't, you know, pardon my ignorance, but I didn't even know that they had like, uh, you know, a college wheelchair tennis. And so that's so cool. And I was wondering maybe if you could first describe like, how you know that how that process came about or how when you were first contacted to get this scholarship uh and then i guess what we could talk more about um uh, college wheelchair uh, tennis as well so um when i graduated from high school it was 2003 and it was a long time ago and um (laughs) i uh let me think about i trying to remember this okay so there was at that time there was about only two universities two or three universities in the united states that had um, a wheelchair, a collegiate wheelchair tennis program. Um, U of A, University of Arizona was one. And um, I know UTA, University of Texas in Arlington was the other. And I wanna say there was one more, but I just really can't remember off the top of my head. And um, so it was kind of, you know, I knew I wanted to continue to play tennis. 
And um, at this time in 20, in 2003, 2004, the Paralympics were coming in Athens, Greece. And I knew I really wanted to try and make a good decision as far as like still going to school and trying to continue playing tennis at this really high level. So um, I chose the University of Arizona and um, I'm really happy I did. I loved every moment of being there. And at this time, there was only a few people on the team. There weren't very many. And I think, you know, collegiate wheelchair tennis is still really growing. It's it's still kind of a newer concept. But we, we basically played a bunch of tournaments here in the States. We didn't go overseas or anything like that. Um, and basically we just played wheelchair tournaments and represented like Arizona, but there was no specific, uh, collegiate tournament at the time. It just wasn't big enough yet. So, but I believe now there's a whole, uh, there's a whole collegiate nationals. And I know that's played at national at the national campus in Florida now, and it's becoming a really big deal. And, um, like the university of Alabama has a really strong program, wheelchair tennis program. Um, I believe Clemson is starting one. They're just really kind of popping up and growing over all over the United States. And I think that's the really big, that's the big push right now with the USTA and at national as far as wheelchair tennis is really just getting collegiate tennis to just kind of take off a little bit more. That, that's fantastic. And so I'm wondering, you know, what do you think is the formula to get more universities to, uh, adopt uh, wheelchair tennis and other wheelchair sports? Like, is there some sort of like magic formula or, or commonalities in these universities that are picking them up? I think, um, I think having a, a good or strong, um, every university has like a disability resource center or, or something along those lines. And it always seems like the universities that have a strong resource center like that are able to um, start or create a great adaptive sports program. So I think it always starts with that. And secondly, just having those, those key people come in and really want to run the program. I live here, I live in Flagstaff, Arizona, and we have, uh, Northern Arizona university and their division one college team here. And, um, they just built a brand new sports, uh, or sorry, brand new tennis complex. It's beautiful, state of the art. And so I, I've actually been talking with the Northern Arizona University here, just trying to get started, just something started. And all it really takes is just one person that might attend school, uh, that would attend school at a university that would show any interest in wanting to do wheelchair tennis or, you know, just being an, or doing an adaptive sport. And then they can contact that their disability resource center. And hopefully if they don't have anything going yet, they can hopefully get something started. So I'm, I'm really just trying right now at, at Northern Arizona university, there's one guy that uses a chair that is a little bit interested in trying some tennis. So I've gotten out with him once or twice. But hopefully, you know, uh, I think down the road, I've been talking with the university to try and get some kind of scholarship started and maybe get a, a tennis program going. So I think it really starts on the grass grassroots level a little bit. But um, you also got to see, you know, who's at the university and what. And I think weather has a lot to do with it. Living in a, in a warmer climate, especially if you're a chair user, makes your life a lot easier than having to deal with snow and, and uh, slush and rain and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I imagine that's really dangerous there. But um Good stuff, uh, Caitlin. Appreciate it. So now, kind of shifting to to playing uh, on the pretty much the pro tour. I mean, I was wondering first off what the tournament structure is like on the tour, and if you could just kind of describe like maybe like a normal uh, season of of pro wheelchair tennis. 
So um, we typically start in January and we'll be like all in Australia. Um, the really great part about the really cool thing about wheelchair tennis is we're part of all four Grand Slams. So um, the only thing is it's invitational. So only the top eight men and women are in and quads, I believe, which I can come back to that later, are invited mm-hmm. to uh, compete in the actual Grand Slams. Um, and so I've been fortunate enough to compete in three of them. I have not done Wimbledon. That's the only one I have it. But usually there's two uh, two tournaments in Brisbane and then one in Sydney that would lead up to Melbourne. And then we'd have another one in Melbourne. And then that one would lead into the Grand Slam there. And then um, once, once that kind of tour was finished, then everybody usually headed kind of back to the States. We had one in Indian Wells and then there's one here in Tucson that were some pretty big tournaments. And then, um, kind of going over across the States to Louisiana and Florida, there was a big tournament. So these were, you know, that were going through February, March, and then April. And then once May really came around, we, we would have, everybody would head over to Europe and, um, then you would have like your French open, Basically, we had tournaments all over Europe, but you just pretty much go from country to country. Um, and then in between, you'd have your French Open Grand Slam, the Wimbledon Grand Slam. All during this time, everybody's in Europe playing a bunch of tournaments. And uh, and then in Korea as well, Japan. And then it would filter just like the Able Body Tour, kind of just filter back to the United States. We'd have our wheelchair U.S. Open, which is always in St. Louis. And then there were a bunch of other like lower level tournaments that other people would play. And then that would all lead up to the Grand Slam in um, in Flushing Meadows. Awesome. That's an awesome summary. Appreciate that. And, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to this, but if, if you could maybe talk a little bit about the uh, different uh, classifications that players could uh, fall under and how that works. Yeah. So, um Honestly, uh, I, I'm not playing a ton of, I'm not really playing any tournaments right now. And um, in, I believe in 2016, the ITF uh, had made, has, is making a new classification system currently. So I'm not really 100% what those rules are now. But I do believe uh, a lot of the other, the players that are on tour right now that I, that I still keep in touch with, basically they all uh, have to provide some kind of documentation about what their disability is and why they would use a wheelchair. Um, some of the classification tests would be, you know, sitting on a table and they would push you just to see how much balance you have or, you know, what, what limitations you are. But prior to that, um, it was just if you were a woman, you played in the women's division. And that meant that, like me, I have a spinal cord injury. So, you know, I, I don't have any function below my waist. And then I could go up and play against anybody that maybe has like a single amputate, you know, just a person that has a single amputation, um, which means they have their full core and they have like, you know, one whole side of their body that works. So that I mean, in that comparison, it's not quite like functionally fair because they just have a lot more core than I have and they have a lot more function. And so I think that's what the ITF currently is working on to try to see if there's a way to make a few other uh, classifications so that maybe you're playing more of the same person or playing more people with a similar disability. However, I don't know. I just think there's not enough. I don't know. I'm not saying that there's not enough players, I just think that having too many classifications or too many different divisions might make it too complicated for people. And I think it would just be better to keep it as women. And then, then we have the men's division and the same thing is there, that division works the same way the women's does. And then there's the quadriplegic division, 
So these guys and gals, um, it's a co-ed division and basically they have to get classified by a medical doctor and classifier. And basically what that means is they just don't have as much use or function of their uh, upper limbs, so their hands. Um, a lot of those guys and gals have to tape the racket to their hand um, because they can't actually grip it. So if you could imagine not being able to change your grip, you're just kind of stuck with the same grip. Um, I mean, those guys, they, they really have to overcome a lot more challenges, I think, than, than the men and women do. But other than that, those are pretty much the main different, the, the really two, three different classification groups. It's just men, women, and then there's the quad division. Um, but the quad and in quad division, tennis is just a little bit differently, or just a little bit different if you watch a quad match versus watching like um, a men or men's or women's wheelchair division match. Um, they have to think more about setting up points and just because they don't have the mobility I can't say that they don't, they're really fast and good, but their mobility maybe just isn't as good as somebody that has the full use of their arms and upper body. And so they have to really, um, you know, select the shots they're going to hit and think tactically about where they're going to go with the ball. Whereas, uh, men, the men and women wheelchair players, we can get away with, you know, making a mistake here or there. Gotcha, Caitlin. And, um, has there ever been any controversy or something where, you know, you, you see a player and you think that they should not actually be uh, a wheelchair athlete or is, I mean, you mentioned there are some tests being done by, by, uh, by officials. So I don't know if maybe that's not a non-issue or, or, or it is. Um, actually it's becoming to be a pretty big issue. Mm. I, I'm not, I'm not in the quad division. I don't, I don't know, but I know that there's, uh, there's a couple people in the quad division that maybe shouldn't be in the quad division currently. So um, I don't know, but I know it's becoming an issue. And I actually started competing in, a, in another sport. Um, and so I'm actually trying for Tokyo 2020. And, and I'm just trying to maybe help you understand this a little bit better. So I, I'm training in uh, uh, sprint kayak. And the same thing with this sport, there's like all these different classifications. And the problem is, is people... I don't want to say this to sound bad, but I think some people think in their mind or they believe they have this disability, but it's not as bad as they think it is. And so sometimes when they'll go in to get classified, they might, they might show that they can't do something as well as they really can so that they can compete at a little bit more of a higher advantage. And, um, it's happening a lot in like Paris swimming, which is another sport uh, Paralympic sport that has a lot of different classifications. Um, and it's, I'm just worried that's going to happen to tennis someday. So that's why I really don't want it to see men and women go into different classifications. Cause I think it could get really sketchy. Yeah. Great point there, uh, Caitlin. And uh, I want to talk about your Paralympic experience. I mean, you know, like I mentioned three time Paralympian, uh, just incredible stuff. And I was wondering if you could maybe, highlight uh maybe your top experience or or couple experiences and and what that was like for you uh just overall in your career yeah so uh qualifying for uh athens in 2004 i had just turned 18 and i was the youngest on the team and i was you know i think i had worked so hard uh that was my my goal to get to the paralympic games and I had worked so hard and I was, you know, I, I couldn't have believed when I'd gotten there, I was already just still in disbelief that I had made it, that, you know, just having that whole experience and being where it's where, you know, the Olympics all started, it was, 
it was really overwhelming, those mm -hmm. emotions that were coming in. I was able to win uh, my first singles match, which was pretty exciting. Um, and then uh, my doubles partner and I, we were in the quarterfinals. I mean, just Athens was a great experience. Beijing, I had the opportunity. My doubles partner and I, we played for third and fourth. Um, oh, man, unfortunately, uh, it was just one of those matches that goes where, you know, you're, you, we won the first set. I think it was like six, one, we, we killed France. And then in the second set, we were up like four, one or something like that. Mm. And all of a sudden, I think these nerves started to come over me and my partner and we were ah, just, I don't even want to think about it, but you know how that can go. And then it just turns sure. around. And so, but just having the opportunity to be, you know, to have that, competitive experience. And that was probably, you know, the most pressure I ever had, um, on a tennis court. Um, I learned so much from that experience and then moving, moving to, to Rio in 2016, I had taken a couple of years off to finish school and stuff like that. And coming back and doing Rio, I knew that Rio was probably going to maybe be my last, my last Paralympics competing, uh, in tennis maybe. And so, you know, I had a really tough draw. I pulled the number one seed in singles right away. That's not the first, that's not how you want to start your tournament. <laughs> um, you know, but I made her work for it. It was a good match. Um, and then me and my doubles partner, Dana Mathewson, we made it to the quarters and we played one of the best doubles matches. Uh, we came up a little bit short, but oh, I played some, we played some of our best tennis and, and that's all I can feel great about, you know, walking away from that situation. But, um, man, each experience was awesome in its own and just very different and unique in its own way. And, uh, just, it's so awesome. And I'm so thankful to be part of all those great experiences. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. I mean, you reach the highest levels of the sport. I mean, everybody just, I mean, it's, pretty much kills themselves to get to uh, the, the Olympics or Paralympics and and you did it three times which is incredible it's, it's great stuff and and as far as um, your training I was wondering uh, you know what type of training especially you know at the time uh, when you were playing full-time on the tour uh, that, that you did besides obviously you know uh, playing tennis yeah um, other than you know being on the court you know for at least Oh man, four or five hours a day. Um, I spent a lot of time in the gym. I had a personal trainer that I was working with a lot, you know, doing tennis specific uh, exercises and things like that. I also worked with one of the things that I still work on daily is just mental side of things. And, and I mean, uh, you know, tennis is a lot like life, I believe, you know, um, there, there, it's just crazy how there's certain things that uh, maybe I wasn't great at, you know, on the mental side with tennis and it sure shows in, in my life, you know, sometimes I'm a really good procrastinator and I felt like sometimes that showed on the court too, but I really worked on my mental game and I worked with a couple different mental coaches. I even tried some hypnotherapy. I mean, I really, I really wanted to try and break through this, some of my mental barriers that I faced. Um, and I, and I do believe that toward the end of my career, I don't know if it was age or maturity, but I really felt like toward the end of my career, I was able to just kind of let go of all of this crazy anxiety that I might've had as a younger player. Um, and I just felt a lot more free. Um, and today when I play tournaments, I, I'm a totally different player. I, I, I just go out there and I play for me and, once I found that, um, pretty much I just felt like a whole new world opened up for me for tennis just because I didn't feel like I had any of these like mental setbacks or anything. Um, and so, you know, just like 
the pros, uh, you know, we, we train just like they do. And we work with all these different coaches and work on nutrition and, and everything like that, you know, trying to make our bodies run like a fine tuned machine. So yeah, same, just a lot of training, lots, lots going on. Awesome. Caitlin. Yeah. A heck of a lot of hours you put into that and, uh, it, it clearly paid off. So you mentioned that one of your big breakthroughs was being able to play free and that you worked a lot on that mental side. So I was wondering, I mean, of course you, you put in so much work to, to get to that state, but how were you able to actually, like what, what mental training did you do that allowed you to, to finally be able to get to this state where you could, you could let go and play more free? Well, I think for me, um, I think because I grew, you know, I started playing uh, this wheelchair tennis as a junior with the U.S. And I think, um, you know, at such a young age, I already was feeling a lot of pressure. And, it, you know, it, it was it was outside pressure that as an, a professional athlete or as an athlete, we've put so much pressure on ourselves. And, and um, maybe... I wanted to be perfect or we're all striving for the best or being the best. And I really think that in my younger years, when I was playing, I felt like I would hold back a lot on the court because uh, I didn't want to let my teammates down or I didn't want to let my country down or, you know, so I kind of had that mentality of thinking. And once I was able to work with these, um, with some mental training, some of the things that we did was a lot of visualization, that really actually visualization was really a big key, key factor for me to kind of open up things because, um, once I started visualizing and visualizing, okay, this is how I'm going to hit my serve. This is where I want it to go. And this is how it's going to, this is how it's going to look. It's just so cool with that mind and body connection, how if you really put your mind to it, then, you know, it, it happens and it works. And so once I started putting a little bit more trust into that visualization, um, I also had a lot of affirmations that I worked with that really helped me on changeovers that I would read and things like that. Just, you know, reiterating to myself, these positive concepts, you know, it really did start to make a difference. And I do have to say that with maturity and age, I stopped caring more. Like I stopped caring more about what other people thought or what other people, you know, all Caitlin lost that match. I can't believe she lost to that person. Like I stopped thinking like that. Like if I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose because I'm going to give it everything I got and I'm not going to be afraid to hit my shot or, you know, anything like that. So I think for me, that was kind of like my biggest breakthrough, just like not caring anymore. And I, I think a lot of tennis players struggle with that, especially, you know, juniors, um, you know, they have their peers that they all, you know, work with and they all look to. And so I think, you know, we all don't want to lose those matches where we know we should win. And I think that's sometimes how our confidence in, in us gets down or, and kind of messes with our psyche. Oh, for sure. I mean, I always had these matches when I was a junior where I, I was thinking like, oh, you know, what will they think if I lose to him or her? Well, him, you know, I, I, I beat him before this and that. And it's just, uh, Really was a struggle, but I'm really glad that you got to that place where uh, that was no longer uh, an issue. And just curious, like if you could maybe give us like one of the affirmations that you uh, would tell yourself. Oh, um, man, one of them that I remember I would constantly say is, geez, well, one of them was always just hit. Well, can I it's it's a bad word. I don't know. <laughs> ah, okay. You could abbreviate the word. Okay. I guess it would just be hit the effing ball. Um it was really just hit the effing ball. Cause sometimes I would get really nervous, especially when it would be tight. And, um, that was my biggest affirmation. And that was actually, um, 
my national coach and when he was coaching, uh, that was his, him and I, him and our thing. Like he would say, Caitlin, just hit the effing ball. Don't, you know, don't think about it. Just hit the ball. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. Thank you for that. And uh, as far as like maybe gym training or or whatnot, I was wondering uh, maybe what the most important part or parts of the body for you, at least that you had to to train uh, or maybe you like focused on more than others that you found helped you on the court. Yeah. um, So because of my injury um, and, you know, with tennis, there's a lot of rotating and twisting. Um, I really focus a lot on working just like my my core, a lot of core work, um, the obliques, um, really working on trying to strengthen what muscles I had in my st- in my stomach and my lower back. That actually was pretty important for me um, because one thing about, you know, tennis is you want to make sure that you, you know, you have balance. That's so important. And sitting in a wheelchair, like if you – if you don't have the best balance, um, that was the other thing is when you're in the tennis chair, depending upon your level of disability, there's quite a bit of strapping that you would use. So you really want to be one with the chair. And what I mean by that is like, if the chair moves right, you also move right. And so figuring out what kind of straps work best for you. So for me, like I always had a strap that went across the top of my knees and I had one that was like kind of right over like my, like right at the bottom of my belly. So that way, like if I fell forward, I could get back up. Like I wasn't, if I, cause if I fall straight down into my lap, like if I just, you know, tuck my head down. Um, I can't get back up. I just don't have the the back muscles to, to sit back up. And so working on those muscles and making those stronger so that when I come and, you know, I'm trying to hit a forehand, um, I can hold my core up and balance it and still try to hit the ball without falling over. Great, great stuff. Appreciate that, uh, Caitlin. And uh, curious too, I mean, you mentioned visualization. Uh, what, what was your, um, if you had one, what was your pre-match routine? Okay. I was a little superstitious. So when I would play tournaments and stuff like that, whatever I started my first, my first match with, um, not like underwear and stuff like that, but whatever I started my first match with, as far as like kind of wearing, um, I always stuck with the same colors, whatever I, whatever I had, whatever hairstyle I had going on during that tournament, whether it would be like a braid or a bun or a ponytail, like I had to stick with that. Like I couldn't change it once it started. Um, I always had like, this electrolyte drink that I, you know, I would always have it ready, at least one of those and a bottle of water. And I had to have a banana on court with me. Those are that, um, as far as my pre-match r- ritual, <laughs> so it's silly, but I always had, um, Pitbull was like my number one go-to pump up song, I guess. I don't know why I would also listen to his album. Um, and, um, just prior to going on, I'd always be listening to my headphones or something like that. Just trying to be in the zone. But yeah, I was just a little bit superstitious about little things like that, but nothing like super, not like Nadal like or anything like that. But good stuff, I like it. I like a lot of Katy Perry fans and Pitbull fans. Um, and, and just curious too, you mentioned electrolyte drink. Was that one consistently one type of drink, or was it different kinds? Um, I changed over time. Um, but the last ones that I or the, this last round when I was playing a ton, I was using a lot of isogenics. I don't know if you've heard of isogenics. Um, but they have a, a couple different electrolyte drinks that I like to use. Very cool. Very cool. And so I mean, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you uh, you really do give back to your community. And you know, one of the things that you do among uh, several is you have a nonprofit called Over the Rainbow. So I was wondering if you could talk about that, you know, how you came up with it and and the purpose of it. 
So over the, I don't, so that is pretty old information. I apologize. I, I, oh, I know. That's all right. Um, so over the rainbow butter, butterfly garden, it's over the rainbow that like it no longer exists right now. Um, but actually I have another, a different nonprofit now it's called Parasport flag staff. And basically what that is, is me and a girlfriend of mine, we started this nonprofit so that we can help, um, our youth in the community here with disabilities or cognitive disabilities, um, just be active, whether it be tennis, playing wheelchair basketball, uh, lacrosse is becoming a new thing. So what we do is we provide, we have sports chairs um, and we provide a day, you know, a couple times a month where people can come out and try different uh, adaptive sports, whether it be wheelchair basketball or tennis or um hand cycling, you name it, we'll, we try it, but it's just brand new. Um, so it's growing. So, um, hopefully, you know, as, as it grows, I'll have more to report on that at another time. But the other, the other thing that I do do, and I don't know if this was in there, um, is I actually run, um, an after school tennis program with, uh, within the Flagstaff Unified School District. And so what I do is I go to all the elementary schools here in Flagstaff and the middle schools. And, um, I teach tennis after school in the elementary schools and, and the PE classes here in the middle schools. And so I get to introduce tennis to them, which has been a lot of fun. And I really enjoy this aspect. It's been a really great piece, uh, kind of since I've moved away from playing competitively and still being involved with tennis. I just, I love working with little kids. So it's just been, it's just been a blast. That's amazing. I mean, really, thank you so much for doing that. Cause that's the, it's really the key is getting the kids introduced to the sport, uh, you know, earlier and, and, and so that they can actually take it up instead of, uh, getting pulled in other sports. Uh, so Great stuff. And and also, I, I read, I'm not sure if this is current, though, like, do you also still coach the Flagstaff uh, girls team? I do. Cool. I do. So cool. this year, unfortunately, though, this, this spring, I'm not coaching, um, but I have been coaching the last six years. I'm about to finish my master's degree in recreational therapy. So I have an internship coming up this spring. So I had to, I wasn't going to be able to coach this year, but um, I believe, you know, they know the school knows that. So I will be back the following year. However, yeah, I have been coaching high school tennis and I absolutely love it. But it's been great because since I'm coaching all the time throughout the year right now, all my girls are in my high school class. So I still see them. But man, it's just been you know, I think when I first got the high school job, I I really didn't know if I was going to I I had no idea I was going to be a coach or anything like that in tennis, but um it really just took me back to when I started playing tennis in high school and how impactful and how important, you know, having that team and feeling part of something while you're in high school, especially, you know, at that age there's all kinds of crazy things going on and I just, I feel really lucky to be able to be part of these girls' lives and hopefully make a little bit of an impact and, and just tennis is just the way I'm doing it, but it's just really cool. Cause it feels like everything's kind of come full circle. Yeah. You're definitely making a huge impact there, Caitlin. And, uh, as I understand, you also have a, is it a yogurt shop? Oh, so that we don't have that anymore. Um, that was the big reason why I didn't compete in London in the Paralympics, uh, Paralympic games, because we are opening our yogurt shop up here in flag. Um, yeah. So my, my partner and I, Greg, we opened a self-serve frozen yogurt shop here in Flagstaff and we had it for about four years. It was a lot of fun. It was right next to the university. Um, it was almost like we had a party every night. It was packed, but we just didn't, I mean, it was just too much. We both, 
both Greg and I wanted to do some other things in our life. And I, and I, I really kind of liked getting into coaching. So we just, we don't do it anymore, but it was a great time. Cool. Awesome. Awesome stuff. And I also uh, noticed in pictures that you have a really cool uh, tattoo, I think on your right shoulder. I was wondering if maybe you could describe it and, and let you know what it means to you. Yeah, so it's um, a tattoo. There, there's a girl in a wheelchair, and I don't know if you remember what Precious Moment dolls are. Do you know? I don't know if you. I vaguely remember, okay. but so, could you describe it? Yeah, they're just like these little figurines that you collect, and I used to collect a whole bunch of them when I was little. And um, so when I first broke my back, my best friend knew that, you know, we collected them together. And so she brought me, you know, the girl in the wheelchair doll and it's just this figurine. And so I also thought it'd be a really cool wheel, uh, really cool tattoo. Um, and then on the other side, there's like a yogurt cup. So that's for our yogurt shop. There's like a little, uh, a little lion and that represents a Leo. My first time going to Japan, I like was kind of, I had no idea that like Hello Kitty was the hugest thing over there. Like heard of it before but <laughs> when I first went to Japan to play a bunch of tournaments like one time I just kind of fell in love with Hello Kitty and she just kind of makes me happy I think so I just kind of threw her in there um and basically the whole piece is just just something that kind of reminds me of my childhood it kind of reminds me of like what I've been through um the ups the downs but regardless of it all like I'm still a kid at heart I think and um I just you know, I love being active. I love playing and, um, you know, lollipops and sunshine and all that makes me happy. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's, it's really, a, really a cool tattoo. Um, so, all right. I, I, there's a couple more questions. If I, I don't know if you have time for me to sneak them in. Okay, awesome. Appreciate that. So what three books or resources would you gift an athlete trying to improve their tennis game? Oh, dude. Okay. Um, hold on. I have to roll over to my bookshelf. Just one second. So sure. one of them for sure, that was huge for me. And one of my US coaches gave it to me when I first, when I first, like my very first international competition was, um, Brad Gilbert's winning ugly. Mm-hmm. Great. Book. Definitely. Um, and you know, I think the biggest piece that I used in there was especially like, I just had so much anxiety and, you know, points in between or what, you know, that time in between points and, um, you know, how to keep your brain a little bit distracted. And so like one of my favorite tools and I use it with my high school girls is like, if you remember, um, you know, kind of like singing a song in your head or like under your breath, just something to like keep your, your mind a little bit kind of preoccupied while you're still playing tennis and just kind of calms everything for me, it calmed everything down. So that was, I mean, winning ugly would definitely be my first one. The second one would be, um, where is, hold on a second. I'm looking. The other one would be Jim lure. You know who he is, correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Lure. So one of his books, I don't remember which one it was, but I love, uh, all the mental aspect side of things, his, one of his, two of his books I have, and they were really, really helpful. But as far as that, that's, that's really all I can think of. Hey, sorry. My dog just jumped on the table. My bad. <laughs> that's awesome. What breed are your dogs? They're pugs. <laughs> oh, pugs. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Cool. They're fun. Cool. 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 <laughs> yeah. They have funny faces. Uh, cool. Um, and I just want to make sure before I, I ask this question, you, you live in Flagstaff currently, you said? Yes. Okay. So if you could write any message you wanted on a billboard that would be posted in the most highly trafficked area in Flagstaff, 
what would you have that billboard say? Does it have to be words? Uh, you know what? No, it does not. <laughs> okay. Oh man, I would. I I think pictures can can you know tell a thousand words or whatever that quote is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think right now, as far as like just the Paralympic movement, wheelchair tennis, adaptive sports, um, all of the above, because I'm a big believer in just being active and living a healthy lifestyle, no matter what, you know, no matter what your limitations are, or if you have a disability or whatever it is. But some kind of picture or something that would depict, you know, somebody with a disability, but still, you know, has that smile on their face, they're being active, whether it be, you know, a picture of, a wheelchair tennis player, or somebody in a chair hitting a ball. Like I feel like that, or shoot, you know, someone in a, in a wheelchair shooting a basketball. I think that, like, just that can tell somebody so many things in just in just by just looking at it. And it just means, like, you know, I think it just says, you know, this person, you know, is not letting anything stand in their way. If they want to do something, they're going to do it. And I just think more than anything, it's empowering. Yeah, and not only that, it would be just spreading so much awareness to people because I think people are still really either they're just like a little bit ignorant or they don't know how to ask questions or they just assume. So I'm all about spreading awareness. Love that. Really love that, Caitlin. Thank you for that. And so kind of along those lines, what is your message to anybody out there who's struggling with a serious, maybe permanent physical injury as far as, you know, just uh, outlook on life and, and what they can look forward to? Yeah. Um, take, you know, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. Um, you know, I've been at, I've been in times in my life where it literally is, I have to take it minute by minute because we know whatever I'm going through is just too much or so painful, you know, just take it minute by minute or day by day, hour by hour, whatever you have to do. But one thing that I always think about when I'm having a bad day is you can't have good without the bad. So I can't, you know, I can't experience a good day unless I know what it's like to have a bad day. And I think when I start to think like that, it just kind of stops me feeling overwhelmed. And I, and I just have to say, okay, today's a bad day, or I'm just going through something bad right now. But you know, maybe in the next hour or two, you know, this can all change, or it could be a different outcome. But um, yeah, that would be my advice. Awesome. That is great advice. I love that. And so where can we find you either online or in person, Caitlin? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at kverf, K-V-E-R-F, or I'm also on Facebook um, under Caitlin Verfurth. You can find me at, at Twitter. I don't really use Twitter that much anymore. I'm on Snapchat. Um, you can find me there, KV Wheels. Um, I want to start a blog. That's my goal for 2020. So hopefully I'll have that coming out. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. Sweet. Yeah. You know, feel free to contact me if you, uh, need any help or anything with that, but, uh, good stuff, Caitlin. Well, again, I really, really appreciate you joining the podcast. It was really fascinating to learn about the world of, uh, of adaptive sports and, uh, your career as, uh, a wheelchair tennis professional and your, uh, just really inspiring story on how, uh, you never gave up and, and you have a wonderfully positive attitude. So, Really enjoyed it, and thank you so much for coming on, and I hope to definitely uh, meet you sometime soon in person, Caitlin. Same. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. All the best to you. Thanks. You too. Thanks.
All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Caitlin Verfirth. And Caitlin, thanks again for coming on to the show. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. I have a great tennis pun for you. Uh, <laughs> and it goes like this. What do you call a really mean tennis player? An ace hole. All right, I guess those are the meds kicking in that I haven't even taken. But <laughs> in any case, I hope that you enjoy that pun. I just love saying puns and telling puns. And uh, if you actually Google tennis puns, the first article that comes up, unless you have some weird browser or something, will be one written by me, which I came up with like 54 puns, I think, in like 45 minutes, something like that. But anyways, uh, if you... Don't want to uh, scratch your eyes out. Maybe don't read that article. But if you want to check out some puns, some good, some ridiculous, then go ahead. And it's uh, several years old. So uh, no particular relevance to the podcast other than because I just said a pun. All right. I also uh, would really enjoy and appreciate it if you could uh, leave a review for the Tennis Falls podcast. And obviously you can do that by just searching for the podcast in your app. Uh, I think Apple Podcasts in particular carries a lot of weight uh, for the reviews there. But if you could just leave a review, an honest review, and let me know what you like about the podcast, what you don't like about it. Maybe it's my jokes. I don't know. But uh, that would be very helpful. And it would also, due to the uh, algorithm that uh, the wizards at Apple use, it would really help the visibility of the show as well. So I really would appreciate that. I also would like to leave you with a quote, as I often love to do at the end of the show. And <laughs> very appropriately, this quote is by the man, the myth, the legend, probably one of the most revered people in the world, Yoda. And the quote is, do or do not, there is no try. Probably one of the silliest outros I've ever uh, ever recorded here. But uh, there's a lot of meaning in that quote, of course, do or do not, there is no try. So just go out there and do it. And uh, yeah, I really do appreciate all the support and, you know, the messages on uh, whether it's through email or Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is, you know, when I receive them, it's really, uh, really inspiring to me to keep going and to create more content out there. Um, I think, was it Per that uh, asked for an episode on goal setting and whatnot? So I'll try to put that in the cards for the future. But Thanks so much for all your feedback and support and uh, just, yeah, just uh, keep listening if you like it and uh, if there's something you don't like, uh, then let me know about it and I'll fix it. All the best to you. Have a fantastic holiday season. I don't think I'll, let's see, um, I'm not sure if an episode will be out by the time you first celebrate, you know, your particular holiday, uh, perhaps Christmas, but uh, if not, uh, well, either way, just happy holidays to all of you. And uh, please spend a lot of time with your family and cherish all the moments. You know, uh, you know, quote I just heard recently is that tomorrow is not guaranteed. And I think that is a very motivational quote as far as making sure that you uh, put in the most effort you can to both achieve your dreams and also to uh, really enjoy those relationships uh, because it's really the most important thing we have our great relationships, whether that's in tennis or in other places. So, all right, that is uh, my sermon for the day, but uh, all the best to you. Have a fantastic day and holidays, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast.
Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.